This podcast is made possible by the generous support of Reillusion, makers of iClone and Character Creator. Netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney, you're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. Hi, and welcome to the FX Podcast. I'm John Montgomery. Our guest this week is Hugh Evans, visual effects supervisor from DNEG, whose work on the film The Matrix Resurrections was nominated for a VES Award for Outstanding Visual Effects in a Photoreal Feature. It's actually up against two other uh, DNEG films, Dune and No Time to Die. As usual with the FX Podcast, uh, Mike concentrates on you know several aspects of the film and dives into a bit more detail. I think one of the interesting things is the use of Unreal Engine uh, 1, you know, based upon the time they did it and the version uh, 4 compared to what it'd be like to do now in Unreal 5. Um, and also just the kind of interesting aspect of having an Unreal Engine sequence to have an actual real-time simulation as part of the simulation in the Matrix, uh, as well as uh, how work was divided between Vancouver and London for DNEG and why that made a difference and how it was a benefit um, in the end creative result um, and what they end up, up with on screen. Uh, and I, I think also this, this kind of, uh, this idea of, uh, how things were done and how things were made and why it mattered on the film and why it was important to the film is, is another interesting aspect of the conversation they have. So let's go ahead and cross to that. Now, this is uh, Mike Seymour speaking with Hugh Evans. So, uh, congratulations on the film and, uh, Thank you. And what an, uh, what an accomplishment at so many levels. And uh, mm. obviously um, at so many levels of complication in filmmaking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I thought we might start the discussion there if we could, because I thought it was um, like something that struck me when I was watching the film and then I was sort of thinking about how it was made, which is uh, some people would argue it doesn't matter how you make a film. Like whatever matters is just up on the screen. But it struck me that with your film, that's not true, that it mattered to the director and the team how you did the stuff, not just what was up on the screen. I just wondered if we could get you to comment on that. Is that just my perception or would you agree with that? No, I think that's fairly true. I think Lana had a very, um, you know, she had the movie in her head the whole time. So she knew exactly what she wanted. Um, It was different to the previous movies. her shooting style, I think, had changed over the years. It's evolved. Um, you know, it was a lot more in keeping with her work on Sensei. I would say it's a lot more sort of documentary style in terms of how the camera moves, how she uses the camera. Um, so we had to adapt visual effects to sort of match that new style. So while we but could I mean, take reference from the earlier movies, you know. Yeah, yeah. But I guess like at a kind of a sort of slightly maybe um, philosophical level, like you you used the uh, Unreal Engine to do a simulation in a simulation, right? And yet when you're jumping off the building in the famous scene, it's like done effectively uh, live action. Um, Mm -hmm. And now you could argue that for an audience, they shouldn't care how anything is generated. It just felt to me like there were sort of almost thematic aspects to the notion of reality uh, the real reality of, in the matrix, like that mythology of the matrix, it's kind of permeated the process of the filmmaking, uh, which I think is really interesting. Mm. No, I completely agree. You know, it was fascinating for all of us. I think you're right, though. Um, you know, in terms of the the jump off the rooftop, for example, that would have been probably way easier and way less expensive to do it, you know, with some stunt doubles um, or even just digi double characters jumping off. 
but the fact that Lana had sort of pushed to have that, you know, there were some things in her mind that was like, this absolutely has to be real. Um, and that was one of those moments. Um, yeah, I think it was, you know, bravo to her for sticking to her guns and being really strong about it and, and decisive. Um, like you say, things about like the, um, the dojo, you know, that kind of yeah. came about through discussions that was, that was always going to be, originally that was intended to be shot um, with LED screens uh, around the dojo for various reasons that that didn't happen. But like you say, the sort of matrix within a matrix idea, the whole idea of doing it within this game construct kind of sat with the story. And again, yeah. for us, it would have been a lot easier to not use Unreal for that particular section. You know, we've already got a tool set that works. We know how to, you know, get the visuals out. Um, but I think sticking with that game construct idea was was really fascinating for us. Like you say, philosophically, just to have this world within a world idea, but also technically, you know, it was a great challenge for us to, to try and rise to. Yeah, on that sequence, I mean, looking at it today, obviously, with today's eyes, you'd be like, oh, well, they've you know, used all the features in Unreal 5, but you weren't even close to version 5 on Unreal for that No, we were, we were 4.25, I think, when we started. Um, so it was winding back a little bit. Um, yeah, we, I think we knew, uh, you know, quality of Unreal is amazing. We knew we could get really decent images out pretty quickly. Um, but our sort of goal was to push it to, you know, we've got a 4K uh, delivery. So we knew we wanted to have full res, 4K renders, ideally straight out of Unreal, but we knew there would be some, you know, aspect of comp to try and just sprinkle a little bit of magic that last 10% on. Um, but yeah, 4.25 was what we started on in Unreal and there were features missing. You know, we've got this whole, basically like uh, uh, tools and techniques that we know and rely on in rendered VFX that weren't quite there yet in Unreal. Um, so luckily we had a really close dialogue with the team at Epic, the tech team, and we could, you know, sort of show them what we're trying to create, what we're trying to get out of the, the package. And they'd report back to us, they'd send us new builds, you know, sort of hot off the press builds that weren't released to public yet. So we were kind of on this, this leading edge of, well, how do we do this? We want to be able to split this out and we can't do that yet. So they'd be writing us these new versions and sending them to us and we'd be, you know, building them. And so that was a fun exploration. I think, you know, like you say, going back now, if we had the tool set that we have now, that whole sequence would be so much easier. Um, yeah, I'm sure we'd breeze through it, but. In, in, there are tools for importing into Nuke. There are all sorts of things. Exactly. Hey, like all these things that came out was like, oh, damn it, that would be so helpful. But we could argue, of course, that we are benefiting because you did that work. That helps uh, drive Exactly. That's a good way of looking at it. Was that Kim Labrari's, what he calls a Spartan warrior team? Like, because uh, obviously Kim made a, a cameo in the film. Of yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Dialogue scene as well. I know, dialogue, I know. I wonder if yeah. you got uh, equity rates for that. But, um, yeah, I hope yes. so. Uh, and so, so you guys did that. Now, what were the, there was stuff for, from Clarice in that shot, right? Was that models that you imported or was it actually elements? Yeah, so we, were... we basically broke it out. So we knew that the environment was going to be a fairly static to a point environment. We had swaying trees, falling leaves, rippling water, but we knew that was all, you know, nice and easily handle, handleable in, in Unreal. Uh, for the dojo itself, um, we knew that ultimately it was going to be exploding um, and that would have to be a very art directed and controlled explosion to sort of pop apart as Lana kind of intends across the shot. So we kind of made the decision to keep that aspect of it in uh, Clarice. So it was modeled, um, you know, Maya sort of modeling route, uh, lit and rendered in Clarice, um, uh, simulated in Houdini. 
So that was the only bit that we sort of kept aside from Unreal, just because we wanted to have that tool set and that control um, that we were used to and that we knew we could get the results from. Was there any live action imported into Unreal, like when you're flying up for like cards of live action inside the dojo? Was it like all comped in? Um, that, that was comped in, yeah. We, right. we, we blocked stuff out um, as much as we could in Unreal. All the camera moves were sort of were, were originally blocked in Maya. We brought them into Unreal to just try and finesse everything, make sure it was all working. But yeah, the live action component of it was, was cards in Nuke, effectively. Yeah. Because if you'd done the LED volume, you'd have gone down a not dissimilar route of building that environment and having it on set, um, as it were, uh, mm -hmm. to have obviously outside. Um, you, you sort of said you didn't do that for any Can you discuss why you didn't go with the, an LED volume or was it just more like a production issue? I think it was more a production issue. I don't know whether it was a money thing, a timing thing, a quality of LED screens available at the time. Um, you know, they, they had some um, uh, slower frame rates moments that they wanted to shoot and i think there was just multiple aspects of of that which just didn't come together in the time yeah, in the cost in the yeah the, from like a like looking forward point of view right that um that moving between unreal and not we get for virtual production or because um like i i was amused to see that uh, characters from the film ended up as um NFTs, like the, the notion of like a digital asset and how far that's going to get used is pretty wide. Um, but but obviously that Unreal kind of format or that idea of the game engine is becoming much more integrated, just generally speaking, as either a tool that you're exploring stuff in or as a tool you're actually using. Definitely. I mean, the line between the sort of video game Unreal and the and movie has been, has been closing for quite a long time now. You know, looking at things like the... Uh, the Unreal, what was it called, Matrix Awakens that they put together. Yeah. You know, assets, assets like that. You know, we had conversations and had the ability to share assets like digi double characters. You know, Unreal has got this massive ability now to pull in so much more detail and data than it ever has. Yeah, there's there's no reason why these assets can't be shared between. You know, if video games are being made after the movies, it's it's literally using the same assets, the same builds, the same models. Um, and vice versa. You know, if you've got a game and you want to import something into the movie, it's the same, you know, the, the same sort of artists are building things to the same sort of details these days. Um, and talking about digital characters and digi doubles, there's at least what two, what I'm going to call ball bearing, I think like it's Exo Morpheus, and there's another character right, who appears uh, with the strawberry sequence. Yeah. yeah. So tell me about the development of those. Was it always to look as it finished up or was there like a long development process to find that, um, that look? Yeah, it was. Uh, we always knew at the start. So Lana had gravitated towards this kind of abstract, elegant, fluid form. Um, there was a bunch of concept art done quite early on about how, how he was always supposed to be made of these ball bearings, but he was quite free flowing and fluid and then would sort of snap back together when, when he needs to. I think as we as we got into the development of it, we, you know, we knew he was going to be a hero character. He had close up shots. He had dialogue scenes he needed to deliver quite important dialogue scenes. So some of this sort of ethereal floating was toned down a little bit just to, you know, make sure that the audience would relate to him. And we tried to keep it sort of the, the backside of him that wasn't being used. So wherever he was using his muscles or his focus that's where the balls would kind of coalesce and, and join together. So if he's delivering dialogue, his front face would be as solid as, you know, as solid as we can make it. And then that would graduate back towards the back of his head, which is a bit more free flowing. So he's got this really nice style about him, but that was, yeah, definitely development went on for quite a while in terms of his movement. 
you know, we'd block something out that would work really well. And then in a different scene, he's moving a lot more. He does a sharp, sudden movement and all these kind of soft balls that we've got flowing will jag out and cause problems. So yeah, about a lot the actual of capture on that is, was it actually a capture volume that uh, the actor was in, or was it like a suit that was a more like an XN suit that isn't actually inside a volume so much as it is its own uh, uh, environment? So it's actually neither. So we, we do, you know, that what would be easiest for us is if he was captured separately in a volume. Yeah. Lana was, again, she really wanted him to be present on set. She wanted the other actors to be able to act with him. She didn't want his shoot to be a separate shoot to everything else. So with that in mind, we got him in a, a, a sort of visual, a sort of faux tracking suit, you know, just high contrast markers and everything, but it wasn't actually tracking any data. We put as many witness cameras as we could around the room to get him from as many angles as we could. And then his body tracking was a, a bit more of a manual body track. Um, Can you explore like a, because there's quite a lot of work being done with um, machine learning and being able to uh, assume or, or infer a rig based off uh, even just a 2D image. Yeah, we, did, we didn't in the end. I mean, that would have been pretty helpful. We kind of went the more traditional route for tracking his body. His face, we used a face camera, you know, head mounted camera to get all his face data, um, which was hugely helpful. There are a few people that make uh, good head rigs, but mm. um, but yeah, like a good, because it's so ironic really, because you want a really high fidelity capture of the facial performance. And yet in a sense, you've got what would almost be a, a lower bit depth resolution face. Not that I'm saying mm. it's not looking great, but you know what no, I'm saying? No, no, I totally agree. It's that that was one of, the, one of the issues. Yeah, one of the issues that we had was trying to figure out that resolution because you know the, the concept had these certain size ball bearings and Lana didn't want it to be this sort of magical effect where the balls could change sizes and you know that you know, I say magical effect they're floating ball bearings but she's trying to ground it in some kind of magnetic reality so having changing balls was like a step too far so just finding the size of these balls to get the resolution required to read the sort of subtle changes of eyes mouth shapes you know there was there was a limit where we had to go these balls are too big this doesn't give us the fidelity you know you capture all this beautiful data and then as soon as you run the simulations over you lose a lot of the performance so that was that was a really key thing for us to try and dial in dial in correctly we still yeah, kind of kept we do need a performance we don't just need a presence it's exactly he's delivering dialogue he's he's uh you know he's well both of them are characters obviously in the film but but what yeah. was in particular is delivering dialogue and but you want to emote them. You want to see that yeah. expression in their eyes. You know, Neo and Morpheus seeing each other for the first time and, and having this moment where they're shaking hands. You, you need people to react to that, not just to see a cool ball floating guy and go, oh, that looks wicked. Yeah, very hard to dilate a pupil when the pupil is a ball bearing. <laughs> exactly. Um, tell me, the, if you had a choice from rendering, is it, um, is it dramatically different to go subsurface scattering for real digi double or mega amounts of reflection because they're all reflective ball bearings with a hideous amount of bounces. I'm imagining the ball bearings is faster, but I could be wrong. Yeah, ball bearings would be faster. I think one thing that we certainly struggled with because they're ball bearings is uh, noise, even, even just visual noise. You know, our, the scenes where Exomorphus was featured was very point lit. We had a lot of small point light sources and, you know, obviously you stick a little chrome ball in there and you've got a disco ball, multiply that by multiple hundreds and it reads even though it's you know calculating correctly as it should be it reads as visual noise everything's flicky and flashy and um we, we sort of struggled a little bit with the lighting 
um, in terms of if we did what was accurately represented on set, like using our HDRIs from each set that was captured, we'd get this really visually noisy result. So we had to adapt that and sort of hero light him slightly differently to how he should be lit, just so it wasn't distracting to, to look at. If I'd been at a meeting as an uninformed individual sitting beside you early on, I would have sort of turned quietly and said, is this guy going to throw a lot of light back on the actors? And if so, are we going to do anything about that? Now, of course, it's not one mirror surface hitting back, but presumably mm -hmm. a large shiny thing is going to have some serious contact lighting on the actors. But what was the, the thoughts on that? That was one of the things that came up. And again, just him on the environment, you know, there's some instances where he stood quite close to a light source and you'd expect, again, disco ball lights to be going on around. There was a creative decision to just pair that right back. Again, it would just become distracting. He'd look like this shiny disco ball guy. Um, so we we reined all that in, thankfully. You know, we did, then didn't have to worry about on set and how the bounce light worked. We did still, when we've got close-up moments, we did still do just a little bit of comp, comp hackery to, you know, give some faux lighting on, like when there's a handshake going on, just a little bit of bounce light onto the actor's hands, but that could be dialed in in comp rather than worrying too much about shooting something on set, which helped us a lot. Yeah, I thought there was particularly, a, I thought it was, it's a graceful kind of line you're walking because A, you, it's not realism because it's not as a digital yeah. character, but then also, as you say, like if you had realistic lighting for what it's meant to be, it would be surprising to an audience. And I thought that was particularly the case in the escape sequence or the breakout sequence where they're going for Trinity because um, not only were we now talking about a whole lot of lights, but we're talking about a lot of atmosphere and a lot of uh, services, reds and stuff. Did Was that kind of like artistic lighting thing, a hard thing to end up at, or did that come out of the same formula? I think these are in terms of exomorphous or just in general? Those, yeah, no, those yeah I was just actually talking about still about exomorphous, yeah. Uh, I think the the red lighting sort of helped and hampered us to a degree. You know, you, you certainly you're limited to a, a color palette. Um, again, it was just it was hard to try and find that level where you're pinging him out enough that you still read him as metallic balls yeah. versus again him just becoming this. You know, that moment isn't about him anymore. That moment's about Trinity. It's about her being lifted up. Um, he is kind of a, a secondary character to that. So his close up shots. You know, we could play those pings up a little bit more where we're looking right at his face. The wider shots, we could play them down a little bit so he doesn't become a draw and we'd sort of fall him off into shadow a little bit as well. Yeah, because those entire sequences must have been um, very tricky for, for just balancing out because, I mean, it's, it is a really dark scene in a sense, um, especially, uh, well, also the sequence um, with Neo. It's like mm -hmm. he's got this dark thing. There's a huge amount of geo there, which to some extent, if I was on the modeling team, I'd be like, turn the lights up. I want to show you the stuff I model. Um, Absolutely. Uh, and also that gives you depth, which gives you that kind of epic establishing shot. But it is in a world that, so I guess the, the combination of that, and then there's a lot of, especially in the wide shots, fog, um, I wouldn't say smoke, but, you know, like kind of transmissive yeah, lighting properties. Mm -hmm. um, how much was that something that you could tackle uh, as a whole, how much was it just so weighed down with so much technical stuff that you were sort of breaking it out and building it up in in Nuke or whatever? I mean, it was it was so it was all driven by what was shot on set. That was very red lighting. You know, you've got the hero lighting from Neo's pod, um, and every now and again we'd have a, a sort of lightning flash at the side on set, which helped drive you know what we were doing with our with our digi extension. Um, but you're right, we were limited in terms of what we could bring to that. 
Um, there was a beautiful piece of concept art that we had quite early on that had these strong yellow light sources as well. So we had the, the overall red glow and then there were some strong yellow light sources coming down. Um, but that wasn't shot on set. There was decisions made to not have these yellow lights. It was supposed to be more of a red moody look, which looked great for the close ups. But then, yeah, when you pull back to the wides, if you're just if you've just got red everywhere, you lose some of that impact and some of that beauty. So we did try to introduce just little you know, find you've got a lot of geometry, like you said, and trying to find little point light sources where we can place this extra detail, little smoke vents that we can light through so it diffuses the light a little bit, just little moments of interest that we can try and pick out, which I think really helped. And then things as well, like you subtle things. So we, we made all these little um, microbots, which you don't really feature, you know, we didn't want to make a big deal of them, but they're tiny little creatures, little critters that were designed based on like Jeff Darrow's original sort of insecty mechanical artwork made a bunch of these little creatures and created this sort of procedural system in Houdini that we could have them rattling around over all these pipes and just little details like that. So when you get to these wide shots, you just see little moments of movement and light and shadow and smoke. I think that all kind of tied in together. With the, um, the shots of the craft, um, as it was in the original Matrix films, the sort of anti-gravity kind of stuff, mm -hmm. The engines provide you a, a good light source, so that motivates yeah. for lighting up those sort of um, cavernous spaces. But yeah. in the escape sequence, which is sort of what I was um, started this discussion on, in that sequence, you don't really have that advantage of having an obviously motivational light. Like a couple of times, there's something that comes down with a with a beam of light, like to sort of see where it's going. But mostly, mm -hmm. you. Yeah, I, I and the thing about that is I always find that direction of light is terribly good for orientating the audience as to what the heck's mm -hmm. going on and where we're looking. But you sort of had like an omnipresent set of little lights. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was wondering whether that ever played for you in terms of just keeping, because it is clear what's going on and it is clear mm -hmm. where I'm looking, but you've you've taken away that one tool of having a sort of an obvious directional light source. Yeah, I think one of, you know, that those wide shots really helped establish that we've got, we basically had this sort of chimney light, this very strong toppy light, which you, which you clock in that wide shot. And then that yeah. kind of gives us an excuse for this sort of top lighting and all the close ups. We still tried to do a bit of backlighting. There was definitely a sort of backlighting motif that Lana had throughout the movie. So even though we've got this fairly sort of flat environment, we did still try to backlight Neo, backlight the pipes, sort of suggesting that there's a, a world beyond the smog and beyond the smoke. That just helped to kind of give us some directionality, um, but it, you're right; it was very omni omni lit. Yeah, it did seem almost sometimes that the pipes themselves, or rather the tubes that weren't solid pipes, but like almost had like the the there was almost a um, uh, the liquid had some kind of fluorescent to it, which also gave gave you some. Uh, is that right or was I just misreading? Yeah, that? no, definitely. Yeah, yeah there was, um, I think, maybe like six or it might have been three, three light sources inside the goo itself, which was, yeah. you know, born from how it was practically shot, again, to give Neo these nice sort of edge lit moments. Um, but we did that in our digi version of the, the pod as well. It just gave us another light source. Like you say, we're very limited on clear light sources. So the pod was certainly one. We've got the big pit at the bottom as well, shining up yellow. So you find often in our sort of medium shots where we've got all these pipes kind of underneath the pod, just being able to give them a little bit of a rim light from below really helped so they don't get lost. We wanted to try and make sure we could still separate the pod from the background because it all very easily can stack up and become not much of anything. You lose that depth. You can get that nice big wide sense from the wides, but as soon as you're on your mids or your close-up shots, you lose that. So we had to play with our atmospherics. If we couldn't sort of dial in the lighting that much, 
we'd layer yeah. more atmospherics we'd try and get these little rimlet moments even if it was just subtly on one or two pipes but it just helps separate that out from the background so given the complexity of the problem from an artistic level were you sort of dumping a lot of aovs out of the render and taking it into new can try <clears> to <throat> assemble it there or were you trying to nail it in the render much more and then just iterate on that until you were happy it was a bit of a mixture. Obviously, you can block things a lot quicker in Nuke. Um, we'd always split, split out a load of AOVs to try and give us that control. But lighting, because we had so much atmospherics and so much that needed to be rendered before it gets to comp, you know, we've got lights shining through fog and shining through smoke. Um, we did try and push a lot more in the lighting before we got there. So we'd probably we, we'd block out a bunch of stuff in Nuke quickly to try and set a look, almost like a concept. Uh, get Lana's approval, get Dan's approval, and then go, yeah, great, we're going to do that. And then we push as much back into lighting as we could. So, you know, we're not having to push so much work onto comp. So presumably you're doing a deep pipeline or a crypto mat or something to like aid and all of that, right? We didn't do deep in the end, more oh, really? because just the, um, the, the sheer volume of data that had to come out yeah. um, and at 4K and the amount of shots that we had in that environment um, just started to prove unpractical it would have helped in certain certain um aspects but we did break it down into as many layers as we could so we had that control just in terms of layers so how many shots uh you I mean, know i know it's a terrible metric but how many hmm. shots did dneg work on in the uh, in the film we did overall i think we did 723 right. in the movie and that was mixed this... between our london vancouver sites and india yeah, because I think when we were talking about those, uh, the ball bearing um, exo characters, one of those was done in Vancouver, right? I think you were. Yes. Yeah. So Exomorphius was a London character, and then Quillian, the other character, was a, a Vancouver character. And that was kind of an intentional split. So they wanted the, you know, they're made of the same technology, but uh, Lana wanted them to have different looks. Like Morpheus is this kind of slightly more flashy, shiny, blingy guy. And Quillian is a bit more of a sort of scientific, earthy, grounded, um, almost a bit more sort of rusty rather than polished. So they had the same sort of underlying technology, but slightly different looks. So I think doing that in two different places inherently gave a slightly different style, which was quite nice. How virtualized is your virtualized is the sort of the pipeline for the workstations? I mean, is it really obvious if you're in like in terms of the tools, are they different in London than they are in Canada? Or is it basically the same thing? And if an artist moves no, same. that is the difference. Yeah, same. No, same. Like transferring work between sites is is super easy other it's just data transfer we, we're running the same tool sets um same so your point then about having the different perspective is an artistic one coming from the artist not from any yeah. kind of inherent pipeline exactly yeah so just basically using the same tools but to do it in a slightly different different way so we wouldn't necessarily say here's the exomorphous setup or here's the quillian setup we'd say here's some renders that we've done that you can use visually to look at and go oh yeah that looks cool and then they'd create the simulation in a slightly different way like the underlying structure of Quillian was a little bit more, had these kind of more almost like veins, the way that the balls ran underneath the surface, there was sort of like these internal veins running, whereas Morpheus's was a little bit more seagrass and flowing. So just slightly different ways of being simulated, but using the same tools. In the sequence when they're in the pods and uh, clearly um, when they're being pulled out of them and lifted and stuff, there's mm -hmm. could be root removal, but you're going to have to use digi doubles. Um, yeah. And I was wondering how you got the digi doubles of the actual actors. Like, uh, were these things provided by the production because they were independently um, sort of done for everybody or were they yours? And, and if so, how did you do them? Uh, they were ours. So we shot in a, um, 
a capture booth, photo capture booth, um, to get their texture reference. We did face shapes, you know, all the fact shapes of the actors. Uh, we got them to deliver a line of dialogue that we kind of pre-prepped, which gives us, you know, transition between fact shapes. So we recorded that on um, video cameras from multiple angles. So we gathered all that data, got it back to DNEG, and we built them as full digi assets. So Neo and Trinity. It was quite helpful. You know, normally a, a VFX studio would be lead on doing hero characters, and then those characters would be passed to other companies. We were quite fortunate on this movie because the way that the the way that we used the actors, so our sequences where we needed the digi doubles were mainly shaved, um, you know, kind of birthing mode characters. Yeah. Whereas frame stores work, for example, they had the, the bike chase at the end, which is them in their fully hairy clothes. So it was almost like we could still do two separate builds because they were different looking characters. Um, yeah. But also, even if you were sharing, you're not going to share the same rigging that frame store has. Exactly. No, you'd, you'd share the models. You share models and yeah. textures normally. You still need to build your LDAV, you rebuild your hair, you rebuild your rigs. So it's normally just models and textures that are shared. And to that end, uh, to build on what you just said, it's not like the textures are going to be particularly similar between a, a biked up rider that's uh, Trinity and a Trinity that's in the, uh, what do you describe it as the birthing? <laughs> yeah, uh, those yeah are exactly. Very different. And we need to worry a lot more about the skin and the pore detail, whereas obviously fully clothed characters, you know, you're worrying more about the costume. So ours was a lot more focused on the skin and the body and um, making sure that we've captured all of that and we've got the, the ports on them with that sort of reddening around them. So, yeah, they were just very different looks. So we kind of almost treated them as different characters, even though they're the same actors. Is it difficult to get that uh, goop on top of the digital characters to look believable? Because that's doing a lot of stuff with light both reflecting, refracting, and, and also dispersing. Yes, <laughs> in short, <laughs> yes, it was very difficult. Yeah, we had some of the some of the, the effects that I really, I was really proud of, but were a little bit more invisible, I guess, was Neo when he sits up and he's got all the cables and um, all the tubes attached to him. So for various reasons on set, safety, ease of shooting, speed of shooting, you know, he didn't have any of those cables on him. He just had the little ports. So we had to sort of individually track all these ports, make sure they were reacting to how his muscles and his skin move, simulate all these cables plugged into him. But then, of course, you've got all the goo. So he's practically in goo. Um, so we've got to then do goo running off his body onto the cables that are attached onto him. And then these cables that go into the pod goo that he's sat in, we've then got to do digital replacements around the cables to make sure we've got that interaction. So we had a lot of, a lot of goo work of matching real ref to our digi which was, yeah, very complex, but one of those effects that doesn't, doesn't seem like we've done that much, because hopefully you don't really notice, you just assume they're practical, is that, that kind of stuff that was really tricky. And yes, when we then get to the full digis, obviously we've got great reference because we've got him thrashing around in real goo, so we can try and get the right consistency and, and how it reacts. But yeah, it was, um, it was definitely tricky. But I think the very thick viscosity of the goo really stops you being able to hide stuff in like splashes and like in normal water, there's sort of like white yeah, froth yeah. or whatever and put a bit of spray on and we can't see how it goes. You had to mm. actually reform that kind of, um, you know, like stretching and then breaking response that Goop does, which yeah. I certainly I noticed that and I, I thought it was, I thought, I don't know if they did that. <laughs> and yeah, then certainly on the, the, the moment where he breaks through as well, that was one of, you know, where, where the membrane actually breaks. So that was a digital membrane as well. So we had the, the goo running over the membrane, first of all, then the membrane splitting and then the goo running over him kind of merging with the practical goo of him. So yeah, it was a, it was a big challenge. 
And I guess the last part of that is it doesn't look very much like the actor when they're in real goop, right? Like there's such a, like if, even if you had, um, I'm sure we've all seen that, like a sports person coming up mm-hmm. in a swimming pool underwater and before mm-hmm. they break the surface, they don't even look mm-hmm. like a real person. They look like yeah. A, yeah. a doll. Strange um, distortion. Yeah. So you've got the problem that if you <clears throat> totally nailed it, they wouldn't look like a person. <laughs> exactly. Even um, if you shot it exactly, you'd be like, that's exactly, not, that's yeah. a digi devil, terrible digi devil. Yeah. So it's another one of these problems you've got, like the cinematic language of, inform me as the audience what's going on but don't be so accurate that i'm confused by the fact you got it right we were we we were lucky we were lucky in the fact that you know so much was shot practically with the real actors um and our you know our digital well for neo in fact the the digi replacements for neo were generally the wides and once he's you know lifted up and carried off and his kind of journey through the the fetus fields and the the power towers for trinity was a bit more tricky because we've got a mixture of digi and practical as she's getting lifted up obviously she's in all these harnesses being picked up practically so we're already replacing parts of her body to get rid of the harnesses we tried to keep her face uh from the practical plates as much as possible um but that was definitely a blend of digi and practical and like you said earlier about having all these lights you know we've got dripping goo with multiple light sources we've got this kujaku synthian creature on top with these blue lights kind of emanating out and throbbing so there's a lot of a lot going on in those shots the towers themselves, and I, I was going to ask you this earlier, but I forgot. The towers earlier aren't, uh, how can I put this? They're not like a, a, a replica of what we saw in the earlier films. No. Clearly, it's a, a deliberate decision. But like, if you were to sort of describe the motivation, like why were they not the same? Like why was it just not going back? Because it wasn't as if it was a plot problem before. Uh, no, it was more an evolution, really. So I think right. this movie is set timeline-wise 60 years on, um, yeah. and there's talk about how the machines need to draw more and more power. You know, they're becoming more reliant on this ever-increasing power source to suit their needs. So the idea with the towers was rather than having them as these nice, tidy, straight-line towers, it's almost like the machines are starting to become a little bit more free with where they're plugging people in. They just need to draw more power. So they're almost like trying to wedge more people in uh, in the gaps wherever they find a gap so Lana wanted it to feel a little bit kind of like a almost like a sort of fungus in the way it grows like you have these bulges sticking out the tower where you've got a, con- a higher concentration of pods just sort of wedged in at multiple angles and then you've got you know some more straight ones and then you've got another little moment where they've wedged more in so it's kind of an evolution of needing more power not having that much more space trying to wedge in what they can on each tower and then expanding their kingdom beyond that as well given that you're going into this history of absolutely epic wide shots from the first three films, I think it's remarkable that the team managed to find such nice, new establishing epic wide shots that were in fact original. Mm. Um, Felt the same DNA, the same sort of cultural basis, but, mm. but different because, uh, because it's you know, nice as a viewer to have the fresh imagery, but, um, mm. but also just it's, you know, you'd use, you, you're going into this film history of like such, because the first three films really were pretty big to start with, as it were. Lost you there for a moment. Yeah, it was, It was. you know, for us, as soon as you, well, for me personally, as soon as I think about The Matrix, those are the kind of shots that I see in my head. It's the fetus fields, it's the harvesters plucking them, it's those strong kind of point light sources. So as soon as we knew that we were going to get to do some of these shots and recreate some of this world again, that was, you know, not just for me, but a lot of the crew was like, oh, wicked, you know, this is, this is what we remember from The Matrix, this is what we want to create. 
So we had loads of fun getting that done. Obviously, massive amounts of work, huge environment to build. And we've got to, you know, again, 4K, we've got to go more detail than was previously seen, more pods, more stalks, more light sources, more smoke, more atmos, more nightmare sky. <laughs> and more fun for the audience. So as a, uh, yeah. as a, as a film goer, I thank you. <laughs> it paid off, hopefully. Thanks so much for taking time to talk to us as well. Really appreciate it. Oh, not at all. No, it's lovely to talk. Thanks, Hugh, for taking the time to chat with us. And, you know, obviously, thank you to everyone who's over time has take, takes part in the FX podcast and to share the information. It's, it can be a bit of a grind after all the films with all the press interviews and all the other things going on. And from my standpoint, I, uh, you know, being part of the FX guide, I feel very fortunate. I think um, Mike does a really great job of diving into some details that you really don't get in other sites or other interviews and publications and i always uh enjoy listening to these podcasts i always make it a point to listen to the actual podcast before i do these intros and closes just to see what's interesting about it and i think they're always really enjoyable and like i said it does take some effort for the people to be involved and so we, we thank everyone now and in the past who's taken part and, and given their time to chat with us on the fx podcast well that's it for this week uh, for Mike Seymour, I'm John Montgomery. Thanks for listening. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide, LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.